This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we can get you one. Acts chapter 17. Our focus this morning will be on verses 16 to 34. Paul is in Athens by himself, and a lot has transpired since he was delivered from the jail cell in Philippi. Following the dramatic series of events that took place in Philippi, Paul and Silas continue their journey, and as we begin in Acts 17 of Acts, we read that they passed through two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, and in both cities they preach the gospel. And in both cities, Jews and Greeks are coming to faith. But as we've seen over and over and over again, the Jewish leaders, they're jealous of Paul's popularity. They're opposed to the gospel. In fact, the Jews in Thessalonica hate Paul so much, they chase him to the next city. And they chase him out of Berea. And since the focus of that persecution was on Paul himself, the Christians in Berea, they send him away by boat, and he lands in Athens. He gives instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as they can. But for now, he's alone in the city of Athens. And what happens in this city, it matters for us today. The sermon that Paul preaches is relevant for us in the context in which we live. And as we examine his time in this city, my prayer is that this morning we leave with a greater view of God and a deeper desire to worship him. And that's our main point. Our, our text this morning is exhorting us to worship the living God. And we're going to look at Paul's visit to Athens in three sections. First, the invitation, verses 16 through 21. Second, the sermon, verses 22 through 31. And the response, verses 32 through 34. So first, the invitation. Look at verse 16 with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopolis saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange thing to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We'll stop there for now. In the past five or so years in the South, it has become more and more difficult to get away from Bucky's. 
Now, some people hate Bucky's. Some people love it. It's a surprisingly controversial topic. I love Bucky's. I love everything about that place, from the hundred or so gas stations to the beautiful restrooms to the delicious pulled pork sandwiches. That place is the place to be. They know what they're doing. So if you're on I-40 or 75 or 81 or 85, you cannot get away from Bucky's. They start advertising about 3,000 miles away, and they remind you every 50 miles, Bucky's is coming. And their billboards, they catch your attention with their witty slogans that by the time you actually arrive, you've been anticipating it for hours. And you walk in and you feel like you're home. You've made it to Bucky's. More and more, people were wearing Bucky's merchandise, Bucky's onesies, beanies, hats, slippers, sweatshirts, swimsuits, name it, there's a Bucky's logo on it. And personally, I have a shirt that says Bucky's Athletic Company, and I love it. More and more, in this part of the country, you cannot get away from Bucky's. And when Paul is in Athens, he can't get away from all the idols that he sees in the city. And while constant Bucky's advertisement might fill us with excitement or anticipation or dread, depending on who you are, Paul was not amused. And he wasn't excited about what he saw. Even though Athens was the center of culture for the world, filled with architecture and art that baffled visitors, and even though it contained philosophical thought that was interesting and modern, what stands out to Paul, it's not the art, it's not the architecture, it's not the philosophy, it's not the politics. What stands out to Paul is the sheer amount of idols in the city. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And in the original language, that phrase, full of idols, it communicates more than me just saying this room is full of chairs. That phrase, it communicates the idea that the city is swamped in idols, that it's drowning in idols. One Roman writer, he, he quipped that it was easier to find a god than Athen, in Athens than a man. Everywhere Paul looked, he saw temples and shrines and altars. He couldn't get away from the idols. Now, in our 21st century Western American context, this is hard to picture. It seems like a foreign experience to us, but when we understand what an idol actually is, I think we'll realize what we, that what Paul sees in Athens isn't foreign to us at all. An idol, most fundamentally, in the words of John Stott, it, it is a God substitute. He writes this simple definition, any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. And that's pretty broad. So that means wealth can be an idol. Food can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Comfort can be an idol. Family or friends can be an idol. A spouse can be an idol. Perfect grades can be an idol. Possessions and material things can be an idol. You fill in the blank. Piper adds, what is an idol? 
It is a thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. So most likely you and I, we're not going to go out to Lowe's and buy materials to build us an altar. We're not going to be tempted to do that. But our hearts can be drawn to other things. We can desire other things. We can love other things more than God. Idolatry, it starts in our heart and in our desires. It's craving something other than God and being satisfied by something other than God. We live in a modern day Athens. We are surrounded by the idols of our day. So before we go any further, I, I think it's wise for us to pray the words of David when he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. As I was preparing this week, I, I was asking the Lord, Lord, show me, <laughs> what do I love more than you? Search my heart. I think the Lord is eager to answer that prayer this morning. He's eager to help us. We want to repent of idolatry. The worship of idols, it's not an ancient problem. It's a modern problem. And we want to repent of idolatry. And we want to respond like Paul does when he sees the idols of Athens. Look at how he responds. Luke records that his spirit was provoked within him. It's provoked within him. What what Luke is describing here is not some low-grade annoyance. It's not sinful anger. It's not self-righteousness. What's being described here, what Paul is experiencing, is it's like a gut reaction to what he's seeing. It's a physical response. His concern is not the idols themselves. They, They don't have power, but he's provoked by the idolatry of the people. Stott writes, the pain which Paul felt in Athens was due neither to bad temper nor to pity for the Athenians' ignorance, nor even to fear for their eternal salvation. It was due rather to his abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him deep stirrings of jealousy for the name of God, as he saw human beings so depraved as to be giving to idols the honor and glory which were due the one living and true God. Paul's ultimate concern, what he cared most about, is that God receive worship and no one else. Paul had such a high view of God, such a desire to see God honored, that the thought of anyone or anyone else receiving that honor and worship, it horrified him. So do we carry this same desire for God to be worshiped and honored? Do we carry this desire into our workplace, into our schools? into our family gatherings, and our own hearts? Does the idolatry of our culture grieve us? Does it provoke us? We we want to follow Paul's example here. And notice, he doesn't just shut himself into his hotel and complain about how bad the city is. (laughs) He acts. He does something about it. He sees the problem, he's grieved by the city, and then he acts. Verse 17, so... (laughs) 
in light of the idolatry that he sees, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So we see the greatest incentive for evangelism, it's a desire to see God's kingdom come and his name exalted. That's what we should care most about. That's what should fuel our efforts on UT's campus. That's what should fuel our efforts when we do go team. That's what should fuel our efforts for this church plant. Paul goes to work and he's talking to everybody. Jews and Greeks in the marketplace, we see in verse 18, he's preaching one message. Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching the gospel. He's urging people to repent and trust in Christ He's talking to everyone. We see he even begins conversing with some of the philosophers, the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. Who are these guys? Essentially, in the words of one scholar, Epicureans, they emphasize chance, escape, the enjoyment of pleasure. The Stoics emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. So it's an understatement that these guys were on different sides of the philosophical spectrum. But they could agree on one thing. They weren't impressed with Paul. They had no concept for what he was talking about. Some thought he was just adding to the list of gods that needed idols. Others mocked him, called him a babbler. Obviously not a compliment. You don't want to be called a babbler. But despite their apparent disdain for Paul, their curiosity gets the better of them. And they invited him to speak at the Areopagus. I've been working on that word all week, so I'm going to try to say it right. That leads us to the second and final part, and main part of our passage, the sermon. This is, no doubt, the biggest stage in Athens. It's here that decisions regarding morality and religion were decided. The brightest minds were present to hear Paul. So what an opportunity this is. It wasn't long ago that he was in a prison cell in Philippi. And now here he is speaking to the critical but curious Athenian people. God had put him there. God was guiding his mission. God was guiding Paul. And it's important before we read this famous sermon, self to note that his D.A. Carson points out, this is a condensed version of the sermon that Paul gave. Speeches here, they they weren't known for their brevity. (laughs) Every sentence, every clause was most likely expounded upon, but what we have in Acts 17 is exactly what we need. In God's sovereignty, it's exactly what we need to hear this morning, and it's the message that our city needs to hear. So look at verse 22 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of The Areopolis said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, ought we not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone? an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Idolatry is Paul's main concern when he addresses the Athenians. He'd seen the idols, he'd seen the temples, and it had horrified him. But instead of coming out of the gate swinging, Paul, he establishes common ground. He almost gives them a compliment. You can see him standing there, waving his hands, directing their attention to all the idols that surrounded them, saying, I see you're very, very religious. You can see him doing that. In fact, you're so religious that you have an altar to the unknown God. Just in case you left someone out, you've got an altar form. You're kind of hedging your bets. Smart. Now, Paul doesn't say that this unknown God is in fact, is in fact Yahweh. And he doesn't legitimize their worship of an unknown deity. But he uses this illustration to make a point. He uses this illustration to point out that the Athenians, they openly admit that they are ignorant of who God is. They have all these idols, but they don't know for sure. And the fact that they have an altar to an unknown God, it's evidence that they have a sense of the divine, a sense of God, but they don't know for sure who it is they should be worshiping. So they worshiped in ignorance. These people were lost for all their impressive temples and cutting edge philosophy. They were deceived. And knowing what we know about Paul, there is no doubt that he felt deep compassion for these people. And I'm sure his heart broke as he looked into their eyes, he saw that they were lost. These people were searching. And now, a couple thousand years later, people are still searching. And what Paul is about to declare to these Athenians is what we have the privilege of declaring to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, and our classmates. It's what we have the privilege of believing ourselves. Paul says, let me tell you who you're looking for. The God 
of the Bible. That's who you're looking for. He's the God who made us, the world, the galaxies, the universe. He's our creator. And then you can see him waving to the temple saying, God doesn't need these temples. He doesn't need these. He doesn't need man. He gives mankind everything. The breath coming out of our mouths is sustained by him. The hearts beating in our chests are maintained by him. The food we're going to have for lunch is provision from him. God is totally independent from his creation, but his creation is totally dependent on him. The reason Paul is so horrified when he gets off the boat in Athens is because Paul had a right view of God. He understood who God was. He had a big view of God. And one of my prayers is that in result of examining this passage, that we have a bigger view of God. In our day-to-day lives, our understanding of who God is, it can be too limited and it can be too small. In the busyness of life, in the meetings and the soccer games and the cookouts and the deadlines and the exams, the presentations, you fill in the blank, God becomes an afterthought. And when that happens, other things, God substitutes, begin to take his place. God is too big to ignore. He is not someone we can just bring into our lives at our convenience whenever we feel like we need him or if we want a spiritual high. He's our creator. He defines reality. We don't exist apart from him. I have distinct memories of when I was younger. Every once in a while, on seemingly random evenings, dad would, he'd go into his closet and he'd bring out this big plastic box. And he'd set it on the bed and he'd open the box. And the inside of that box was filled with Howard Varnado memorabilia. <laughs> Moments from the glory days <laughs> in this box. And there was a scrapbook filled with baseball cards and football cards and pictures. They were notes that he wrote when he was in middle school. They were pictures of him and mom. They were in college. And he'd tell us stories. He'd tell us stories of things that his dad would do, stories from how he got in trouble as a kid, stories from when him and mom were were dating. And I remember when I was younger, I remember loving these moments. It was a bonding experience. It was interesting. It was weirdly nostalgic for me, listening to him talk about his childhood. It was inspiring. And I remember thinking, man, I want to do this with my kids one day. But eventually, after looking through all the memories, he would close the scrapbook, put everything in the box, close it up, and he'd put it back in the closet. And we wouldn't think about it until six months later when we did it again. (laughs) Out of sight, out of mind, he put the box away. God is not like my dad's scrapbook box. He's not something that we can just box up and take down whenever we feel like it, when we feel like we 
need him, when we feel like we need a morale boost. God cannot be downsized in our lives. He's too big. He's too great. We are dependent on him for every single thing. Paul, he's helping us. He's helping us think rightly about God because he knows it's only when we know the truth about God that we can know the truth about ourselves. So if God is our creator, what's our purpose? Why are we here? The age-old questions that those philosophers were asking and our own culture asked, what is the point of life? We see in verse 27, God made man so that man could seek after God. This is why you exist. This is why I exist. To know, to love, and to treasure the living God. Idolatry, idol worship, when we do that, we're going against what we are hardwired to do. This is true of everyone on the planet. No one is exempt from this. Your boss, your child, your neighbor, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Taylor Swift, fill in the blank. It's what every man was created to do. We were made to seek after God. And this seeking that Paul's talking about, it's referring to a full body, everything in us longing for God. Like what David writes in Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Standing in the midst of thousands of idols, Paul is telling the Athenians, you were made for the one true God. Just imagine that moment. You were made to seek this God and love this God. Something had gone wrong in God's created order. Sin had blinded them. And sin blinds us to God. That's why Paul says that man is feeling his way toward God. There's an awareness of God. There's an awareness of the divine. But sin has blinded man to who we were made to love. And it's here that Paul, he makes an interesting move. He actually quotes Greek authors to convey his point, showing that even pagan poets illustrate that they have an innate but flawed awareness that we were made for God. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. These guys were writing, they were writing about pagan gods, but Paul quotes them to prove his point. And he fleshes it out more in Romans 1. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds 
and animals and creeping things. So mankind, we have collectively rejected our created purpose. But there still remains a sense that we were made for God. And we see that in our day-to-day. We might not drive by an idol on the side of the road, but it's still there. We spend so much time aligning and identifying ourselves with political groups because we have a sense that we're meant to be a part of something bigger, when we're meant to be a part of the people of God. We attach ourselves to influencers or celebrities and do what they do because we know we're meant to follow someone. And we're meant to follow our Savior. We obsess about things like health, money management, our careers, because we have an innate desire to fixate on something. A desire that's meant to find fulfillment in God. We chase experiences and good feelings, whatever form that takes, because we're meant to be satisfied in God's presence. We want to see justice and love prevail because we're made in God's image. And God is the source of love and justice. We can see God's stamp all over our lives. It's all over the place. We were made for him. And though we're naturally blind to our God-given purpose, the good news is God is not far from us. He's acted. And he has revealed himself clearly in Jesus Christ. And a day is coming when God will deal with the idolatry of man. And this is where Paul goes in his sermon, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Imagine him preaching this in this context. He's saying God will deal with the rebellion of man. For him not to do so would be unjust. That there's a day, there's a specific date on the calendar when mankind will be judged. Paul tells the Athenians this. We need to hear that this morning. That the evidence that that day is coming, it's found in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this text, the resurrection of Christ means two things. One, the risen Christ will judge the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. All ethnicities, all levels of socioeconomic status, Regardless of the period of history in which they were born, man or woman, all people will stand before Jesus Christ and be held accountable for how they live. So so here the warning. Paul is warning the Athenians. He cares too much about the glory of Christ. He cares too much about the glory of Christ and he loves these people too much to soften the blow. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, pay attention to this. This matters. The living God sees everything. 
every thought and desire and deed will be exposed. It's possible to fool the people around you, but it's impossible to fool the living God. Pay attention to this warning. Pay attention to this. Jesus rising from the dead is evidence that this day is fast approaching. But the resurrection, it also means something else. Jesus died paying for sins. And he rose defeating the power of sin. Defeating the power of our our idolatry and the spiritual blindness in which we live. So if you're a Christian, be reminded this morning that the judge has received the judgment on your behalf. That the God by whom all things exist came into our world and died in our place. So now there is forgiveness of sins. There is freedom from idolatry. This is what Peter tells Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. Remember, and, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If you're a Christian, you are forgiven of your idolatry. I am forgiven of my idolatry. We need to let that land on us. We need to consider how amazing that is. That God would forgive rebellious sinners. It's amazing. And we're not just forgiven. The Spirit of God is, is actually changing our hearts. And he's giving us new desires, an ability now to resist our idolatry. Our eyes have been opened to our sin. The Spirit is helping us. God himself is changing us so that we can do what we were made to do. Paul writes later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're a Christian, by the power of the Spirit, you have an ability to turn from your idol and serve the living God. You are not enslaved to the idols in your life, you've been set free from what you formerly worshiped. You've been set free. Your sins are gone. And you can now turn and serve and love and enjoy the living God. So if you're here this morning and the Spirit is convicting you, the exhortation is turn from it. You can do that because of the power of Christ.
because the Spirit dwells in you. There is hope for deliverance because of Christ. So repent and enjoy the forgiveness of God. Enjoy the forgiveness of God and orient your life around him. Finally and briefly, let's look at the third part of our passage, the response. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It's amazing. The reaction to the resurrection, it cuts Paul's message short. He knew that teaching about the resurrection would be controversial in this context. But he proclaims the resurrection boldly because as he would write in 1 Corinthians 15, apart from the resurrection, there is no salvation. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't adapt to the worldview of the Athenian philosophers. He proclaims the full gospel. The full gospel. Our world, our city needs to hear the full gospel. The people in Knoxville need to hear the full gospel. They have a sense that they were made for God. They need to hear the full gospel. They need to hear that Christ has risen from the dead and that he will judge the world in righteousness. It's crucial to proclaim the full gospel. And like Paul experienced in Athens, you and I, we will be mocked and laughed at. But take heart. Jesus is alive. And he has overcome the world. And he is building his church. And we see some mocked, some expressed at least some sort of fake interest in hearing him again. But some believed. Some believed. Dionysius and Damaris and apparently more believed. They believed. And you can just imagine them in the midst of the crowd. Hearing Paul preach boldly of a risen Savior. And in that moment, the Spirit softened their hearts and they believed. And for Paul, it was all worth it. There is no sense in any way that he regretted speaking to these people. (laughs) It was all worth it. There's actually reason to believe that Dionysius became the first bishop of Athens later in his life. God uses the faithful proclamation of the gospel to bring lost sinners to saving faith. And he uses it to build his church. And may we be a people that proclaims the full gospel. We're meant to be encouraged that regardless of the context in which you live and the type of workplace that you're in and the people you see on a day-to-day basis, doesn't matter. They need to hear the full gospel. 
They need to know of the risen Savior. And you can tell them the gospel boldly, confident that God uses the gospel to save. This passage is meant to build our faith. It's meant to make us marvel at God. Who is like him? Who can compare to him? He's our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. And our response is to worship. And we've been doing it all morning. We want to sing to him. We want to close in singing to him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word reveals about who you are. That you are the great God, the creator, sustainer. You're our redeemer. You've shown us mercy. Despite the idolatry of our hearts, you've rescued us from it. Thank you for the grace you've shown us. Lord, we give you all the glory. Pray that your name would be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.